Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. Hello and welcome to Brian Moore's Full Contact in association with The Telegraph. I'm Brian Moore and this week I'm joined in the studio by the former England and Lions flanker, Peter Winterbottom. Peter, how are you, mate? Good, thanks, Brian. Good, mate. Uh, look, let's start off at the uh, sharp end, the very sharp end of the season, the finals. Saracens convincing victory over Exeter at Twickenham. In some ways, um, I'm quite glad that it turned out the way it did in this sense. I fully understand how good Exeter have been, how remarkable their journey is. But I got the feeling when they played Newcastle in the semi that when they had 93% ball and they didn't score a lot of points, that if we had a final where they kept the ball for as long as they can do and Saracens then kept the ball for as long as they can do, we might get a repeat of the European Champions Cup final where Racing and Leinster were just so good in possession that effective you got 25 phase almost rugby league before anything happened. And the fact that Saracens went out and they had that X factor with players who were able to break up that sort of game meant that the final had to at least open out a bit. Yeah, I, I mean, it was a tough game. Yes. There are two, two solid sides. I think what was disappointing from Exeter's point of view was the the lack of creativeness. They didn't sort of seem to, to know how to break through. I mean, as you say, at one point there was, I think, 24, 25 phases and, and Exeter hadn't even broken the gain line. Um, you know, at least uh, um, Saracens, for all their sort of solidity, they had a bit more creativity. I mean, the first time that sort of Farrell got the ball, I think he chipped it over the top and uh, good... Um, Good went through and and eventually they scored. Yeah, um, you know because Brian, you know the, the rugby we weren't creative players and I, I and I felt that that Exeter should have done should have had a better plan and should have done more to try and change break things up and try and break that Saracens defence because I mean it's you know both sides defensively were very good. Well, for me that's the next part in the jigsaw. They've gone really well. They are probably as good if not better than the vast majority of sides in the Premiership, maybe only Leinster are more accurate at the breakdown. But Noel can be a, a wild card. Sometimes Woodburn can be. But that's the next bit that they need to take because they will beat the vast majority of sides playing the way they do because they deny them ball, they eventually find holes, they eventually score points. But when you come up against sides who are equally capable in defence of counting, of not getting dragged in, 
that's the extra bit they now need to become a great side. They're a very good side. They're a very consistent side. But that next little bit has to be their creativity. Now, whether they have the players in the squad already to do that, whether it's a case of Rob Baxter just allowing them off the leash a little bit and allow them to expand and to try more, or whether they need to get a couple of players, I don't know where from necessarily, to inject that, I'm not sure. But that is what they need now to take the next step. Yeah, I, I think that you know you you could look straight to the midfield. I mean, the boy Joe Simmons, he looks quite a, a, a good prospect. You know, he's got good skills. He's got a good good feed. He, he's uh, yeah, he'd have had a reasonable game. But I think outside him, I, I was disappointed with Slade. Um, I don't think he really showed what he can do. Um, yes, on Saturday, and and Hill is, you know, he's a young guy, but he's mm-hmm. not. Uh, he's a sort of. He's coming up against Brad Barrett, and unfortunately for him, Brad Barrett is a you know, similar kind of player, but a lot better. Well, we'll be speaking to Brad, uh, so we'll take that aspect of it out. We'll also be speaking about Leinster with uh, our guest Malcolm O'Kelly, so we'll go over that now. I don't think you saw the England Barbarians game. I was commentating on it for the BBC, so I had to watch it. And I'd simply say this. It wasn't long ago when people were saying that the Barbarians, given that they were always going to be scratch sides, they have about three, four days, three practice sessions to get together. When they come up against a national side of whatever composition, that it's unfair because they can't compete organisationally. And rugby is a sort of game where you can do an awful lot by scripting and denying the opposition pressure. And yet they scored nine tries. And Ashton rubbed it in by scoring three. He could have had more. And what was most disappointing for me was this, was that you would think when you've got a scratch side, that when they're taking the ball up and it's, you know, playing one or two men out, it was very simple, one or two men out, ball driven in first up from a forward, nearest two players went in. You would think that an organised national side of whatever composition would put pressure on that ball Stop it coming back quickly, if not target turning over. And England just couldn't do that. The Barbarians, even though, as I say, they got together just the week before, they got the ball back with ease, they made ground when they carried, and then when it went out wide, well, I'm afraid one or two players just showed that the physical elements of their game just weren't up to it because the big wingers, the island wingers, and the centres ran over, round, through, all over them. Ball out of the back of their hand. They were tremendously dexterous. The support lines were good. And it was embarrassing, actually. Well, I mean, the th- you know, as you said earlier on, the thing about playing against a scratch side like the Barbarians is because they, they've got talent, you know, talent across the, 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 the park. And they have got these big Fijian boys who can, uh, can offload, can step, and, and can break a tackle. And unless you you're able to close them down and, and slow their ball down and get turnovers, you know that if you give them space, they're going to run run rings around you. And clearly, this is what they did. And you know, when it comes to that sort of one on one stuff, well, it doesn't matter how big the guy is. You you've got to you've got to make your tackle and you've got to do your job. And um, and if people didn't, then you know, and, and quite a few down. of the tries were simple one on one. Missed tackles or half tackles, and then it was a ball to a supporting player who cut the line, who got beyond 
the first fridge, and then the scramble defence came into play, and the support lines were good, and they were very simple, and they were very effective in the way that they drew men, timed the passes properly, and the rest was history. But yeah. also, there were times when the Barbarians played a bit by Barbarians. You know, the ball was thrown backwards in trouble when it shouldn't really have been. It was bobbling around in the backfield. And that's normally when you pounce on it, you make errors, compound errors, get worse. But England couldn't do that. The ball was messing around at the back, bobbling around, and players were looping and picking it up and flicking it about without being hit, bang. You know, normally you'd expect defences to swarm all over that sort of loose ball, and they, did, they couldn't do that either. Now, yeah. Eddie Jones said that he was happy with the performance of some of the younger players. Maybe Curry distinguished himself in the terms of the way they hit players, but he wasn't over the ball as a seven, which was disappointing as well. And if you're looking for positives, I think Eddie Jones was, he was right on the edge of what he could legitimately say that he could have taken out of that game because I didn't see much. And moreover, this is the point. Not so long ago, England had a reputation that they were a good side and if they clicked, they were going to give you a, a good, a, you know, hard time. And even if they didn't click, they were going to be really difficult to beat. Now, this is not an international, but this is the fourth, you know, loss in a row. And that aura of invincibility could go further. It could go down further when they get to South Africa. And once you've lost that, very difficult to get it back. And at the moment, the trajectory of the curve, which was inexorably upwards, has stalled, if not starting to go down. And it's going to be a difficult tour in South Africa, as you know. Let's look at this. I mean, Chris Robshaw got a lot of flack, but it was a workmanlike performance from him. But he keeps being played. And I don't know, you know, whether he will make the World Cup squad on, he, on his present form. And to me, you know, it looks as though he's the dog because he's reliable. He's always given the awkward task of going in because you can sort of rely on him to put a performance in when others aren't given that. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, Chris, is, he's got to be careful because he's, he is the guy that always puts in a good performance. You know, sometimes it's not spectacular, but he does generally play every single game he plays, he puts in some sort of performance. Um, but I think England need more than that. You know they need people to make an impact, and 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 in these, you know, they need guys to step up to Test rugby and really make an impact at the, the top level. Now, unless Chris has, well, he won't get a break this summer. He's going on the South African tour. You know, he's not um, guaranteed a Test place in South Africa. Um, you know, in many respects, I, I hope he doesn't and has a, has a rest because he would be far better to to especially at his age to say, look, I'll just take the summer off, recharge the batteries, and then put in some performance um, next next season leading up to the World Cup. Because if, as you say, if he doesn't put the these performances on, you know, he's not going to make it. Yeah. Well, Cipriani is in the squad. He came on at fullback. You know, Daly was moved up. Daly was a plus. Daly played well, but the I'm struggling at the moment to understand why you would take Cipriani if you're intending not to play but fly off and give him a chance there. I don't see the point. I, I don't either. Uh, and, you know, Cipriani, he's a, um, you know, an, an immense talent and he does put in some great performances, but there is a downside to him and that he's not a great team man. Um, he doesn't, you know, he seems to be a bit of a loner at times. Um, but, but when he's on form, yes, he is fantastic, but you can't guarantee that and you don't know really what you're going to get with him. And I think to, to have him in the squad is, 
you, you're either going to say, look, you know, you, Cipriani is going to be in my starting lineup, mm-hmm. or or forget him because they had the regular or oh, first choice halfbacks out there. Ben Youngs and George Ford were there, had very 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 quiet games because mostly they were trying to chase people who'd broken the first up defensive line, you know, in the backfield. So they had little opportunity to mould the game in the way they can because England were on the back foot. And again, I stress this is to a scratch side who were playing certainly simple one-out rugby when they were taken up from the forwards. And when you looked at the defensive organisation, you had to say to yourself, I don't know what's going on. Now, Paul Gusted is not going to be there because he's going to go to Quinn's. Someone is going to have to uh, step up. I don't know whether Sean Edwards, who's, uh, who's joining the Dragons, I don't know whether they can drag him out. I don't know where the defensive coach is going to come from, whether they can pull Sanderson from his position at uh, Saracens. Presumably he would like the uh, opportunity to work for England, but whether or not at the moment he thinks it's the right step is another matter. But, you know, you haven't got a full-time defensive coach now. You haven't got a full-time attacking coach. And let's just say sort of this close to a World Cup, and it is getting closer, no matter how many months there seems to go in terms of games, it's close. Not ideal, is it? Well, it's not at all. I mean, um, you know, and they need somebody to come in to 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 get to give the guys some direction in defence. And you know, England have got to get back to the the style that they are a difficult side to beat. Mm. You know, you look at all the good sides in the world. I mean, you know, the, someone like Leinster nowadays, they are very very difficult. Ireland, a very difficult sides to beat. You know, they don't give you anything. Now, certainly, last six nations, England were 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 weak. They they had um, they would give away soft penalties. They give away soft tries, and you know somebody's going to have to come in there and 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 change things. And now, as I said, who is going to be? I don't know. I mean, Alex Anderson would be probably one of your first choices. I mean, he's got a great record, but I'm not so sure he would do it. No, well, we'll look. We'll go on to talk about the prospects for South African tour later, but now. Pleased to say we can speak to the Saris captain and centre. Just signed a contract extension to 2020. Brad Barrett. Hello, Brad. Hey, Brian. Hi, Peter. How are you doing? Hi. Hello, mate. Uh, look, um, how good were the celebrations? Yes. Um, yeah, I'm feeling a little <laughs> bit sorry for myself today, but uh, it's been a, a great sort of uh, 48 hours. Guys have really enjoyed it. Now, look, you, along with uh, players like Chris Wiles, not necessarily the big name players these days, and that's with every respect and and so on. And yet, when you look throughout the Saracens team, all those little cogs all worked on Saturday. They weren't working at the start of the season. What's the, what's the reason for the turnaround? Yeah, I think a hallmark of our success has been that combination of you know ex-internationals, um, current internationals. Uh, new guys coming into the squad, um, and I think all bring their own dynamic to the team. Um, I think in terms of our performances uh, during that period where things weren't going so well, um, I don't think all all but the, the Thunderbolt that we had against Claremont all went far away from where we needed to be. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it was fine-tuning, maybe finding our soul in terms of what makes us tick, and I think it's always been going back to the culture with Saracens, um, understanding the people and understanding what motivates them in, in order to get the best out of them. Can this team get better? Yes, without a shadow of a doubt. How? 
across the board, I think it's it's the personal drive from the individual um, that spurs on the collective. I think there's always a personal responsibility to get better at Saracens, but I think when you train alongside people that are constantly pushing you, uh, both people in your position, but also you look across and you you see your fly half or you see your tight head prop um, taking himself to the next level, um, it, it pulls you along with them. So there's always a, a mentality to enjoy the experience of getting better. I think we all often talk about these championship wins, but uh, you, you realize after sort of two days that it's gone and it's gone and dusted. Um, you, you soon, soon realize that it's the, the spirit of the journey getting there. That's, that's more important, the actual achievement. When you're in the uh, sort of form that you were, and I don't know if it's unprecedented, but it's certainly unusual for you to lose that many games on the uh, bounce. Who is it, what is it in the camp that makes you keep faith with systems and, and as you say, things like, because they're fairly uh, general words, aren't they? Values, culture, and so on. What is it specifically um, that enables you yeah, to pull that through? Yeah, I think a lot was made of that period. I think what, what people may forget is Two of them were LV Cup games, mm-hmm. which, I mean, Saracens very much use it as a developmental sort of um, tournament. Um, three of the fixtures were during, sorry, four of the fixtures were during the, I think it was the autumn, where we didn't have any of our 10 to 12 internationals available. And then two were in European games where I think we'd suffered a lot of injuries at that point. So. Mm-hmm. I think the the beauty of what we had at the run end of the season is we largely had a fit squad. Um, I think we learned a lot during that period in terms of resilience, um, how we stay on task, how we still um, still be the team that we want to be. Um, but then I think more importantly, having those uh, key figures on the pitch um, definitely helps in the big games in the run up to to finals. And Billy Vitapola, um back and firing. Not right yeah, to say. Not right to yeah, say yeah. that he's. You know, no. Saracens are so much more than just believing in Apollo. But the thing is, with England and Saracens, those teams are so much better when he's there. Across the board, I think. I mean, you have a, a guy like a Billy, and you combine him with Mara and Mako and Vincent Cock, Jamie George. I think it's a it's a formidable pack. Um, you know, we also were without most of the seasons without Michael Rhodes, who'd been. Um, you know, unbelievable for the last two years. So to have all these guys fit and firing for the the, the run into the season um, is obviously a, a huge part to play in, in making the team successful. Always had a depth uh, at Saracens, but difficult when you're trying to replace, I mean, saying goodbye to Chris Wiles and Scott Britts. Have you got enough to replace them? Um, I, th- I think they're irreplaceable in terms of the personalities and, and in, in many respects, a style of play. I think it gives the opportunity to someone else, someone new, to come and put his, his imprint on Saracens. I think, you know, both have uh, had illustrious careers at Saracens. Um, you know, Skulls lit up the Premiership for 10 years and, and Chris has been unbelievable for Saracens for the same amount of time. Um, probably where we will miss them most is the personalities. Uh, both very different, both are very different styles, but both have brought so much to the culture and been a sort of bedrock for the organisation for so much time. So we lose two fantastic players, but I think more importantly, we lose two key cogs in, in the culture and everything that Saracen's about. Now, 
you know, you 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 are one of those players who um, has been around at Southampton for quite a few years, along with sort of Wiles and Brits, and 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 the the culture has of the team has come from people like yourself. There is one guy who is sort of ever present in the Saracen side, and he has been for years, and he's he's never seemed to have got the recognition that he that he deserved, and that's Jackson Ray. What has he done wrong not to 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 have you know some sort of international recognition? Because to me, he is just an outstanding player, and 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 every level that he steps up, he performs well. I think we've all Saracens been asking that question for the last couple of years. Um, you know, it was fantastic. Jackson received both the Players Player and the Fans Player of the Year um, for this season. And I think it was just a testament to the the unbelievable um, consistencies he showed. I think uh, he's been a stalwart in the team. Um, he's someone that gives so much to the organization. And why he hasn't had recognition is uh, is a bit of a myth to all of us at Saracens. But, you know, we, we are so lucky to have them and to have people like that. Um, they are what make the club what it is. And, um, and and yourself, you had a cracking game on Saturday. Um, you know, an, another you, really Peter. solid performance. Um, you know, you're one of the, the, the players that, that, that I see that um, doesn't make mistakes, does his job exceptionally well. Um, do you, I guess you, you still have ambition for... For the England setup, um, have you had any contact? Is any any sort of you know murmuring that you may have a chance to get back in? No, I haven't had contact for years, to be honest. But I say I I'm, I'm so excited about where this team can go. I think being involved with with Saracens is um, a pretty special place to be, in that it's somewhere that you never really want to get off the train. Um, you know, when people spoke to me about me resigning, it was it was a, a no brainer for me in my mind. Yeah, but um, you know, it's somewhere that keeps you youthful and keeps you engaged and and keeps you striving for more. Well, look, I mean, and and the way the team plays, it's clear that everybody uh, is enjoys it massively. And um, you know, the fact that you have a, a very talented squad, um, um, I mean, a f- forward pack that you know nobody would want to face. It's a testament to the to the setup and the club. Yeah, I think you know everyone's a different character and everyone has a it sometimes can sim, uh, sing from a different hymn sheet. But I think the beauty of Saracens is that they celebrate those differences. Um, I think trying to understand the person and what makes him tick is a, is a, a foundation of getting the best out of him as a, as a player. So, you know, the, the beauty and what we really respect is that when guys come back from England, whether it be Six Nations or Autumn, they possibly even more excited to rejoin the club and get cracking where Maybe at other clubs, uh, do the players have the same appetite? So we always uh, put a huge pride on, on playing for Saracens. But, you know, when guys return, they're so welcome back into the fray that they can't wait to get going again. Brad, when you were uh, with Saracens, for such a long time, the club was right out there in terms of leading the way in so many aspects of the game. This season, Leinster have taken certain things and they're doing them probably better than anyone else. And you're in a position where you've got a team potentially that you could learn things from. The games that you've um, faced them in, what do you think uh, you can take from their success that you might look to uh, to in- incorporate into your own performances? Yeah, well, I think off the back of that loss in Dublin, I think 
that had a huge impact and acted as almost a, a galvanizing force for the team for the rest of the season. Um, I think we all realized on that day we were well beaten. And uh, what it what it did to us probably mentally was that it, it enabled us to have a focus and, and see where we needed to go. Mm-hmm. So I think since that point, um, we've improved as a team, I'd say 30% in terms of what we've done on the pitch, but more importantly, how we've attacked training and how we've had a mentality to to be pretty relentless. Um, I think that's what um, led to showed us on that day. It was down to a few small key moments, um, both possibly switch, switch offs in their concentration for us, which they capitalise on. Well, just let's jump to one thing. I've got down here. I hope I get this right. Tiki Tonga coffee. What what's that? What's that, what's that all about? Um, Tiki Tonga Coffee is a, a business I've had for about 18 months. It's a coffee roastery. We we have a sort of online store that supply people at home, but we supply uh, rugby clubs, uh, restaurants, pubs, bars, all sort of trade joints, a few places in the city with their, their coffee supply. So uh-huh. it largely stemmed from a bit of a passion project. Um, always been into coffee, I think. But nowadays, professionals don't get to have as many casual beers as we used to. So Coffee's the way we get to, to know each other. So it's a brand about bringing people together and sharing their experiences and connecting uh, more on a one-to-one basis than uh, away from social media. Peter and I shake your heads as if it's uh, in, in our day. Well, maybe we could take with Chris. Chris, Chris Wiles is making he's got lager. Beer. He's got a beer coming. He's making beer. Yeah, that's a bit more Chris like Wiles. it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, you know, he, he, he was concerned I'd be a competitor, so I had to find a slightly different niche. Fair enough. Brad, well done. Thank you very much. Um, Great, as usual. Tremendous performance on Saturday again. One of the players who, well, you just put him there and you know he'll do his job. Thank you, Peter. Thanks, Brian. Enjoy your summer. Well, we were talking about Leinster with Brad and he was quite candid and said, look, we felt we learnt things off them. Two things, the uh, small margin, the way in which you needed to get everything even the little things right, you couldn't afford lapses in concentration and the intensity that you needed to bring not only to the 80 minutes that you delivered on the field, but in training as well. They've been the standout team of the season in Europe. You know, they won an historic double. Uh, they beat Scarlets uh, at the Aviva. We are shortly going to speak to the former Leinster and Island Lock, Malcolm Kelly, about that. But before we get him on the line, Peter... How impressive have Leinster been? Uh, they've been absolutely outstanding. Um, you know what? They've got a, a very talented squad, but I um, and I think Brad, Brad alluded to the to uh, you know the the, the the small margins, the small gains, and Leinster have have uh, managed to to understand that that that's you know the the relentlessness. And if you get a, get one chance, you've got to take it. You know, you don't get that many chances at that at the the sort of highest level. And I think they've taken. The game on, you know, alongside Ireland have as well um, become a side that is very difficult to beat. Well, I think Malcolm uh, is now here. Uh, hello, Malcolm. Uh, hi, Brian. Hi there. I'm here with Peter Winterbottom. We're just talking about Leinster's historic double. Um, yeah. In your opinion, what, what's allowed the step up um, this season? What's been the difference? There's a few things that have, uh, have certainly changed from of last season. Now, last season, they got to a semi-final. Uh, they were away from home and, you know, they had a, a tough a tough battle 
and a narrow loss. So, as I say, there wasn't a huge amount in it. Um, and last season as well, the Scarlets were playing a relentless style of rugby that that, that uh, neither Leinster nor Munster could live with. And that was that was that was the difference in results. But uh, in terms of what 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 where Leinster are now and how they've got there, a lot of praise has been given to uh, Stuart Lancaster and his introduction uh, to Leinster. The players rave about him, and uh, he has been um, a really positive influence in terms of uh, how they handle themselves at training. Um, terms of the level of intensity that they can reach at training and his ability to motivate them week in, week out. Mm-hmm. Um, now you've also obviously got a, a great crop of young guys. Um, the, the emergence of, uh, of the likes of Dan Levy and, uh, and James Ryan, the, the interesting stat I'm sure has been bandied about is that he hasn't lost a professional game uh, all season, uh, which is incredible. I think it's like 22 games now unbeaten. Uh, which is an incredible achievement for for an incredible stat for uh, for a young guy, and in a bizarre stat for a team for a team, uh, you know, with so many reasons why you can lose a match, he hasn't. But uh, you know, his performances have been outstanding, uh, and you know, for successful teams, you've got to have individuals that uh, uh, perform and. I think I think for for Leinster they were missing, uh, you know, they weren't missing much, but they were missing a real energetic engine type second row, yeah. like who, who who has the whole game in terms of his running lines, in terms of his work rate, um, his line out ability. He is like the full package at age twenty one. They've got a huge potential to try and uh, create more of a, of a Leinster legacy. Uh, Malcolm, I got to know Stuart reasonably well when he was an uh, England coach. I like to think I uh, got on reasonably well with him. I know that the World Cup experience was a bruising one for him. A lot of the criticism that he came in for, some of it justified, some of it not really, really good, really did uh, hurt him uh, in the way, yeah. certainly when it was personal. And I always yeah. thought it was the best thing for him to take himself out of the English setup completely mm. and try somewhere else. I didn't know where it was going to be. Yeah. From yeah. A, an insider Leinster point of view, do you know who was responsible for making the approach to him? Was an approach made to him and, and what was seen uh, with his talents as to why Leinster could use him and how it's, you know, why it might turn out as well as it's done? That's a good question. Like Leinster, I've, have uh, in terms of recruitment have been have had some real jackpots like they unearthed Joe Schmidt they unearthed Michael Checker mm-hmm. who previously only coached uh, at Randwick and Joe Schmidt had been assistant coach at Claremont now I would have thought Stuart Lancaster was more of a uh, uh, a would more, more more of an obvious choice than any, either of those two I, I suppose Stuart was was reeling a bit. He was obviously hurt from the English situation. He was probably, possibly a little bit uh, disillusioned and, and needed a new challenge. And you know, it, it just turned out to be a, a perfect fit. Um, I would imagine, knowing Leo as well as I do, he uh, Leo is very strategic and uh, 
Leo and, and, plus, and one guy used to be as well, who would very shrewd guy as well, would possibly have uh, have seen the opportunity there. And, and you know, for Leo, I suppose, Leo had to be able to, to say, OK, we, we need this guy more so than, you know, the, the threat of him to my... To, to to me as a as the head coach, yes, uh, you know Leo was man enough, I suppose, to say we need this guy more than 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 what it would what it would mean to uh, you know m- my reputation. So between them, they have seemed to have really got the re- really got the plan right. And uh, yeah, like I think from what I've what I've heard, the feedback I've heard. That Stuart Lancaster is incredibly happy with with where he's at, um, and he's actually turned down some some opportunities since. Um, and I know Gervin Dempsey is now moving on to Bath, so I'd imagine Stuart Lancaster will take more of a uh, more of a role uh, regarding the back line, or certainly will head that head that up without any kind of uh, need for interaction there. And the defence, I think, was obviously his baby as well. Uh, but you know, in general, like Stuart Lancaster is a great, uh, um, you know, man of incredible experience and has seen it all. And to have him involved with Leinster and with the quality of player that's coming through, it's just the ideal match. Well, when you're looking at Leinster going forward, you can see nothing but bright horizons. But the same. Can be said about Ireland, really, can't it? Because going f- towards an Australia tour with a really, really strong squad, only two uncapped players, I think, have been uh, named. They would expect, I think, to clean sweep over there. Mm-hmm. How important is it in their run-up to the the World Cup that they keep this momentum? Because let's face it, if you are brutally honest, especially when you look at the quality of some of the squads that Ireland have taken to several World Cups, they've underperformed. And this time round is probably the one where they should, could be saying, we have a definite opportunity to win this one. Yeah, for sure. Like this is this is this is where you want really want to be at your at your peak <clears throat> and maintaining that peak and um defining your squad and and uh knowing what your squad is is capable of. Uh and this Australia tour again is just a perfect opportunity for Ireland to maybe unearth those last couple of players to really figure out uh, where maybe some of your uh, squad members are. I think I think there's I'd say there's majority of that uh, first team that's going to go out and that first match uh, has already been selected, um, but there are a few uncertainties. Um, the likes of Joey Carberry. Uh, as the backup ten probably needs to play one of those games, or uh, another. There's another young lad there, Ross Byrne. Um, so those guys, they, they need to define that and they need to figure that one out. Because you know, in a World Cup, and certainly for Ireland, the last World Cup, they got they got six players injured against France, key players, and then they went uh, up against Argentina and just fell well short. So you have to be able to dig deep into the squad and and that's what they need to really find out and you know it's not about it's not just about the result you know obviously the result will will either come because that quality of that side is there and you know how well coached that they're going to be and it's if it's whether or not you can 
you can they can continue to bring that energy uh, at this stage of the of the season away from home. But the key is to try and try and find you know that some of those some of those midweekers yes or strengthen that uh, the strengthen the depth of that Irish squad. Malcolm, the one the, just leave it with this point. The, uh, the one doubt I have uh, is, is this: is that the halfbacks are so good when they're on form. They're both tremendous players individually, as a collectively even better. So much experience. If something happens to either of those, I'm not saying that Ireland are a two-man team. They're not, nowhere near that. But the defining point, I think, between Ireland potentially being you know, a side that goes well in the World Cup and one, if they're on form and play well, that can actually win it. Is there the pressure around there? Can Ireland keep their number two and three challenges in those positions sufficiently strong yeah. you know, to, to make them stay on course? Yeah, that's the big question. And it's very obvious, yeah, for sure. Conor Murray, Johnny Sexton, those two boys are just playing at a different level at the moment. But each of them are only their only men and, and for either of them to be to take a knock pre pre the World Cup and see them out of the out of the World Cup is a is a very uh distinct possibility and, and the drop the drop off is significant. You know, there's a lot being said in the Irish media about where Joey Carby is gonna play his rugby next year. Um currently you've got you've got neither all the 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 tens are coming from Leinster. Yep. There's three tens in the Irish squad from Leinster, so there's opportunity there for maybe one of those tens to go to either Munster or Ulster. Um, and the nines, the nines, there's three there that are trying to put their hand up. Um, and young John Cooney now has been given an opportunity on this this uh, Australia tour, and he's the Ulster nine. There's huge opportunity there for yeah. certainly with one of the nines because it's it's up for grabs. Yep. It's up for grabs at this stage. I don't know if you're going uh, on tour to, to watch them, but uh, thank you for your contributions throughout this season. Great as usual, Malcolm O'Kelly. Great. Brian's been a pleasure. Time to speak about laws, and that means Nigel Owens. Hello, Nigel. Hi, Brian. How's it going? OK. Well, Man. as if we didn't need this, um, 12 new laws to the law book after uh, having tried. I won't read them out because it would be immensely boring. But a lot of them... You know, have been well trialled. Are we really going to see much difference now? These are properly incorporated. Well, you won't see you won't see any difference in what you've seen in the last season because they've been in trial during the last season, and they're now just actually written into law book as a law now rather than a, than a trial of it. So when you're going to be watching the game, you're not going to see any any real difference really. The only difference you will will see is. Um, um, is in the under twenties World Cup where they where they're trialling the the sort of the nipple tackle thing, which uh, is being trialled in the under twenties uh, in France, which starts I think Tuesday or Wednesday this week. So when you be watching a game of rugby, you're not going to see anything different really, apart from if you're watching under twenties or what's been trialled there. Everything else is being in law uh, last year, and uh, it's it's just in, in in law now. Hi, Nigel. Um, just wondering, what what are your plans for the summer? Have you got? Uh, are you um, working, resting. <laughs> I wish I was resting, but I'm I'm, I'm off to Japan. I, I'm off to Japan a week today, actually, um, 
for a free test in Japan. Um, I am on touch for for Nick Berry and Nick Bryant, two relatively young and new referees. They're doing Japan against Italy, and then I'll be refereeing Japan uh, Ireland then before uh, before I come home the the end of June, and then uh, a bit of a rest then. Hopefully July is usually off, apart from World Cup year where everything sort of switches round a bit because there's no summer tours in World Cup year, so June is off. So it, July is pretty much all off uh, as a referee in the Northern Hemisphere and. The first couple of weeks of August as well, then depending when when you're when you're back in for for the start of next season, then in pre-season friendlies or the rugby championship or whatever. So yeah, it's going to be it's been a long yeah. season. So I'm I'm looking forward to to a nice break when I get back from Japan. Yeah, well they they seem to they work you hard, don't they? Well, yeah, they do. It's it's it's, it's, a, it's a long season now. So um, you know we because of the nature of of the season you know when the, when the players finish their tours the end of June then they know they've got nothing then until they start back in September or depending on, on what club or country they are they may not start back till second third or fourth week of September maybe but as a referee you you know you, you come back from the tours end of June and then if you're involved in the rugby championship uh, that starts around I think around the sort of August of 18th 19th around the middle of August so if you're involved in, in, in the beginning of that then they're pretty much straight back into it for pre-season training in, in July. But what they usually do, in all fairness, they try to look after us pretty well. They, what they did this year was, if you notice in the, in the Six Nations, the Southern Hemisphere referees, because it was the beginning of their season, they came into the Six Nations sort of middle of it onwards. And probably maybe the same will happen again now in the Rugby Championship where the Northern Hemisphere referees are coming into their new season. So it may you may see the sort of beginning of the rugby championship heavily officiated by officiated by the southern hemisphere referees and then those of us from the northern hemisphere who are lucky to be involved in it then will come into it sort of in the latter part of it uh, naturally back into a season really so they they try to look after us as much as they possibly can in a, in what is you know a, a year long season now pretty much not not far off really well, Nigel have a great time in Japan I don't know how many times you've been there before it's a great place to tour only one spray. My first test, actually, back in 2005, Japan against Ireland at Osaka. So yeah, I'm looking. I'm looking forward to to, to going back there. Well, behave yourself because there's lots of distractions over there. <laughs> okay, I'll try to. All the best. Thank you very much. <laughs> Wince, before we uh, look with Maggie Alfonsi at the uh, women's game and how that's gone this season with the first incarnation of the Tyrrells Premiership 15. Let's look at the team of the season. I mean, would you pick Ireland above above Leinster as a as a as a as a whole? Very difficult. I mean, to be to a certain extent, there's a huge crossover, isn't there? I mean, I just think Ireland Irish rugby in general yeah. this year has been, you know, top draw. I think it's very difficult to, to to distinguish between the Ireland side and the Leinster side. I mean, they're both you know they both play in a sort of similar style. They're both inventive teams. They're both very difficult to beat they don't give away any free points they take their chances and they both have a fantastic culture mm-hmm. um, and you know it's the culture of the side is you know for the longevity is absolutely absolutely crucial okay uh coach of the season mark mccall at uh series joe schmidt obviously and then the lancaster cullen uh, access for Leinster. maybe pat lamb i would choose uh, dean Dean Richards. Mm-hmm. I think what what he's done up in Newcastle has been fantastic. I mean, you know, I'm sure he has a reasonable budget, but uh, I'm, I'm sure it's, it's miles not, below most. I'm sure it's budget. not the same sort of budget as Saracens. And what he's done with uh, you know a lot of his players. I mean, he's 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 quite a, he's a shrewd operator. He's 
you know, he's resurrected Nicky Gonover's game. Um, yes. You know, when he was discarded from from Leicester, for example, that's just one example of what he's done with with players, and he gets the best out of them. Six Nations, I mean, it was a shocker uh, for England, Ireland, deserved champions. Let's look at the uh, the South, the Pro Fourteen, the South African franchise. When they came in, they had a hard time, didn't win for quite a while. Yet in the uh, latter stage of the season, started to put some performances in. Do you think their introduction has been a success? Yes, I do. Yeah, I mean, especially the Cheetahs. They've uh, they've performed performed well, yeah. and um, and I, 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 as far as I know, there are other South African sides. You know possibly trying to get into Well, the they are queuing up 14. to try and do it. But, you know, it's always been an experimental thing. They've always been looking to push uh, the boundaries and make it a more interesting competition. And I think largely they succeeded. All I would say is be careful whether you want, and this is hard to say sort of super rugby rejects, but, you know, there's got to be a reason for me to have these teams in. And if it's just going to be more the same from South Africa then I think they'd be better looking when people have been making noises, you know, about maybe, you know, a Georgian team, a German team or something like that. If you want to bring variety in, there are other places to look. Well, yes. I mean, uh, you know, the, the, the Pro 14, you know, their, their job is not to, to help South African rugby. I mean, yes. they've, they've they've done that with the Cheetahs, certainly. Um uh, but yeah, I think look, look closer to home. I mean, the sides, you know, possibly in in Georgia, for example, yep. whether you know, aside from there, could could join the Pro Twelve. Um, why not? Yep. Um, and just finally, the rise and rise of Richard Cockrell at uh, Edinburgh. Now, you know, we're contemporaries of uh, Richard Cockrell. I will be quite open. I've said this to him. I didn't think he would be as successful as he has it, and in the manner that he has. But he's obviously got an enormous amount now of experience as a coach. But it seems to me his man management skills at Edinburgh are the thing that have brought them back on track. It's not necessarily, you know, what hand goes where, what foot goes where. It's basically saying to them as as players, as individuals, look, this standard overall is just not good enough for pro rugby. As players, as people, you know, as athletes, you are not good enough. You're not taking it seriously enough. And this is how you do it. Yeah, well, I, I, I've got to say, I'm very surprised at how successful he's been up there as well. I thought he was losing his way a little bit at Leicester. You know, they've obviously reacted to him and reacted in a positive way. And he has, you know, he's clearly taken some of that sort of hard-nosed Leicester attitude and, uh, and, they, and they've responded well to it. So good on him. I mean, he's, uh, it's good to see. It is good to see. Well, I think Maggie Alfonsi, the former Saracens, and England flag is now on the line. So, hello, Maggie. Hello, Brian. Hello, Peter. Hello. First season, Tyrrell's Premier 15s. What's your verdict overall? It's a, It's been a very good season. Um, you know, last season, the last few seasons, obviously, hasn't been um, as competitive. Uh, there hasn't been, obviously, that investment. There hasn't been a title sponsor. And with this season, having you know, Tyrrell's put their, put their brand on it and then have... Having uh, 2.3 million pounds from the RFU invested over three years has made a huge difference um, to the standard of rugby, um, but also the, the talent of players coming through. And we've seen just the competition gap between teams also reduce. So last few seasons, what we've seen is it's been pretty much two teams fighting at the top and that they're, they're sort of dominated mm-hmm. the league, where this time round, obviously with the investment, you've pretty much had six teams who could have 
potentially won the league, which has made it much more interesting to watch. And like I said, it's improved the talent pool as well of players coming through uh, to international level. Uh, I, I certainly agree with that. Just I wonder as a product, what they need now to do is to reduce the gap between those sides and mm. say, you know, Worcester Valkyries, who unfortunately have been yeah. on the end of some horrible beatings. And, you know, that's not good for the teams that are playing them or for them. Can you mm. see over the next two years the teams, that, the, the couple at the bottom who struggle quite badly, closing that gap just to make sure that the fixes against them, you know, are at least competitive? No, definitely. I, I, I think over the next few years, that's going to be a big focus. Like you see with the, obviously the Aviva Premiership, you, you've got your teams at the very bottom who are fighting it out to still stay in touch with the, the top you know, six, um, six sides. And I think that's, that's what we want with the women's um, you know, league. We want to make sure that you've got 10 really good teams rather than just six very uh, competitive sides. And I think that's going to be improving over the next three years. Obviously, with the investment, you'll start to see um, more players coming through, but also the coaching setup for each club also improve as well. Um, so I do think that's going to happen over time. It just takes time, like anything. You, you put money into it, you see, you, you get the rewards the first year, but to get real benefit from every team improving, that will take, I think, the three-year cycle. Now, you know, the decision from the RFU to alternately feature contracts steering towards sevens, then towards fifteens, depending on which of the big tournaments are coming up. I've always thought that was a mistake. I thought it was a mistake first time. I thought it was a bigger mistake this time. It didn't go well in the Six Nations. It didn't go that well in the sevens. Now, do you have any inside information as to whether that policy is going to change or they keep featuring these things? Because I return to the point that the household names that were starting to be recognised, not just within women's rugby, but you know, in rugby in general, need to be playing domestic competitions and certainly, and most importantly, Six Nations for mm. that tournament to make the headway you know, and to make the strides, to pull its own sponsors in to increase the value of the product. Mm. So, like, as you've already alluded there, Brian, so the funding used to be very much, there'll be a big focus on pushing more investment in the 15s game when it was leading up to a Women's Rugby World Cup, 15s Rugby World Cup, and then the money would switch around and there'll be less investment in the 15s game and more investments in the 7s when it was leading up to uh, well, Olympics and, and Rugby World Cup 7s as well. Uh, and I think there has been talk about going up to the next 15s World Cup, professional contracts being um, reinstated. I think the overall aim for the RFU is that they want to make sure there's 15 uh, professional contracts and there's seven professional contracts. I think that's a big focus. I don't have any inside information, unfortunately, on that one. But I know that there's there's a big uh, focus to make sure they get that. Obviously, you would have seen in the in the um, media recently that New Zealand women have just been their 15 side have just been given professional contracts, which is fantastic for the game because it's only going to improve their standard more. It just means uh, the situation that we're in is. England have to now find a way of getting themselves back in a, in a position where they can get dominance again. And the only way they're going to do that is by getting full-time contracts, I would say. It's not just them, I guess France, USA, all the other nations out there who have 15s sides. They have to really start now almost finding a way by moving forward. And the only way they're going to do that is, is professional contracts. And I think New Zealand are now starting to lead the way in that. And, and uh, Maggie, do, uh, from uh, an English point of view, it must be, mm. do, are you... 
it's obviously good that New Zealand have now contracted their players. I mean, what's the sort of reaction amongst the England uh, players at the moment? Are they going, well, hang on, you know, we should be maybe getting this, you know, we need to be back on contracts um, to, to be on a par with the Kiwis. Yeah, I haven't really had a chance to talk to a lot of the players, but if it was me in that position, I think the natural reaction would be we want full-time contracts to be in line with what the New Zealand women are doing. Um, as you know, in any professional sport, any edge that you can get over a, a team, uh, you'll take that edge, and that's what New Zealand have done. They know that the England women's set-up had obviously taken away the full-time contracts and then gave uh, match fees instead. And I do think what New Zealand have looking to um, create with their players, it's going to really improve their performance. And I mean, they've already already been a good side for many years without the funding. Now I just think they're going to become even more dominant. And England, um, not just England, France, USA, all the other nations out there are going to have to start thinking about what's their next step. And, and professional contracts really is the way forward. Well, I fully agree. You don't need to give them even more of an advantage because um, it's the sort of thing that they will take um, with both hands and you will see them disappearing into the distance. So let's hope that they are if you get this one right. Thank you very much, Maggie Alfonso. Thank you. Let's look ahead. One year to the World Cup. England at one point looked to be heading in the right direction. Hit a few stumbling books recently. Some of them more important than others. I just look at the setup at the moment and I just wonder now with the coaching situation being in flux, with the deficiencies being exposed quite horribly, actually, during the Six Nations at the breakdown, these are things that a year out are not ideal, but fortunately they are at least a year out, and if they're put right, you know, England can get back on track, but they are things that absolutely must be bottomed. Now, I don't know how the tour is going to go to South Africa. It's going to be a difficult tour, But if they don't get to grips with these particular issues, then they are going to be significantly behind Ireland, New Zealand. We'll see what comes out of South Africa, but they traditionally have always managed to do reasonably well in World Cups. Can they get back on track? Well, I think that the the tour um, this summer is absolutely crucial, not only to to find um, a few or unearth a few more young players, but for the side to to get its mojo back, and for the side to sort of to to you know to to go back to the basics and get their game plan right, and understand as a side how they want to play the game and how they're going to score and how they're going to stop the opposition scoring. Because you know, over the last couple of seasons, England haven't been inspiring. You know, we have won a few games through the fact that we we do have good players, but for a lot of those games, you couldn't sort of say. This is the style that England are trying to play, and you have to you have to get the, uh, your style because you know in international rugby it's a massively intense arena, and you have to know exactly what your job is within as a per, as just as an individual player, but you know fitting in with the whole team. And I think we've lost our way, and and I, I think that's this tour is crucial because you know we we could we could win three nil, we could lose three nil, um, and and I think if England if they can, if they can perform and they can manage to to get a, a good game plan and have some creativity in the side, then we could come away from South Africa on a positive note. But it could end up in tears. Well, it's a crucial uh, tour. We will see the best of luck uh, to England and indeed all the other Northern Hemisphere touring sides. 
all we have time for. That's it this week and indeed for this season on Brian Moore's Full Contact. Thank you very much for the uh, support of The Telegraph throughout the season. Thank you to my co-host Peter Wantabottom and a special thank you to my producer Abby Patterson for her efforts throughout the season and thank you all for listening. For now though, it's goodbye. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.